Newly revealed internal communications from the New York Times shows the lengths that the management has gone to to bust or stop the union organizing drive by hundreds of tech workers at the newspaper. At the end of the day, the Times and its fellow mainstream media giants are profit-seeking corporations, a fact that is clearly reflected in their so-called unbiased reporting. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality, there's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program we appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show richard wolf is the co-founder of the organization democracy at work he's the author of many books the latest being the sickness is the system when capitalism fails to save us from pandemics or itself there's a new hard copy edition of professor wolf's book understanding marxism which you can also received by going to rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. You're in New York City. So is the New York Times. Long thought to be the newspaper of record in the United States, the most prestigious newspaper. It's lasted for a very, very long time. It's a source of news. It's a source of opinion. It's also a big corporation or a big company, at least, a family-owned company, in fact. Anyway, let's just talk about the organizing that's taking place among tech workers in the New York Times. Of course, the New York Times, like other newspaper platforms, became digital or became incrementally digital over the decades, starting in the mid-1990s. The organizing of tech workers isn't taking place only at the New York Times. It's taking place all over the country. It's at Google, it's at the other major tech companies, other media outlets. Anyway, there's a number of issues here. The the tech workers are considered highly skilled, better paid, and at the same time, they are a new dynamic force in the labor movement. But the New York Times, which, you know, in terms of its editorial policy, says that it's not anti-union, that it in fact has encouraged workers to be able to form unions free of the obstacles put in the path of workers by different administrations, the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, different labor law. Anyway, the New York Times is in fact fighting tooth and nail to stop the organization of tech workers. So there's a lot here to talk about. Let's get started. Yeah, the part that most interests me is the fakery that lies behind the notion that in the United States and in societies like the United States, 
we have a quote-unquote free press. We never had that. We don't have it now. More and more Americans are turning off to the mass media that are private enterprises overwhelmingly because they don't like them, don't trust them, and don't believe them. I would argue that part of the reason for that is that the delusion that we have a free press was never more than just that, a delusion. What it supposedly meant was that the press could, quote unquote, tell the truth because there wasn't a government agency censoring it or controlling it or limiting it. But that was always an inadequate understanding because it left completely untouched what it means to have a private, profit-driven capitalist in a position of deciding what gets covered, how it gets covered, when and where it gets covered. And we've never broken to have that freedom. We've never said you cannot possibly allow the important news of the day that we all depend on that shapes our political decisions, shapes our whole attitude towards one another, towards what's happening. You can't leave that in the hands of big business employers. Let's remember, employers as a whole are 1% of the American people. The other 99% are employees of one kind or another. And that's the reality. And to have the newspapers controlled by the 1% who employ and not by the 99% who actually read and depend on the newspaper, that's no freedom at all. That's making sure that whatever is printed is what's acceptable to, comfortable for the employer class. And the New York Times is absolutely no exception. That's why there's such a care taken to excoriate countries in which the government takes a hand in shaping what is and is not in the media. The truth of it is we have never in this country broken from allowing newspapers, radio, television to be overwhelmingly owned and controlled by an employer class with the employee class put into a vastly inferior secondary position with no control over what is actually finally in that newspaper. Every reporter will tell you that sitting on top and looking over his or her shoulder is the editor and above the editor, the publisher of the newspaper who answer to the owner of the newspaper And that's the way this system has always run. And that's one of the reasons why any kind of anti-capitalist initiative, whether it be workers trying to change the newspaper's organization, whether it's workers trying to form a union, whether it's a social movement that includes some degree of criticism of capitalism, This newspaper, the New York Times, like so many others, makes sure to downplay it, 
to ignore it, to minimize it, to do all the standard maneuvers that they love to criticize in other countries when it's done by the government, but which they then do. And look at your example yourself, Brian. Here it is, the New York Times, occasionally understanding why workers somewhere else would want to form a union, but of course, not in the backyard, not in the offices of the New York Times. Richard, I I want to quote, since this is a, a socialist program, we want to quote some socialists here, and I want to get your response. Here's Lenin, one of the more famous socialists, became famous because the movement he was leading actually succeeded in taking power in old Russia in 1917. He wrote, freedom of press and bourgeois society means freedom for the rich to systematically, unremittently, daily, in millions of copies to deceive, corrupt, and fool the exploited and oppressed mass of the people, the poor. Obviously, a real critic of the so-called free press. You know, it's true, though. I mean, we were talking... Richard, yesterday in our show yesterday about the difference in the way the U.S. media treated the Beijing Summer Olympics in 2008 and the way they're treating the Winter Beijing Olympics in 2022. So we used contrasting media coverage from the New York Times, The Guardian, NBC, you name it. All of the coverage in 2008 was about the splendor of the games, the grandeur of the opening ceremony, the newly confident China, just, you know, kind of gushing reports about China in 2008. And then we're looking at the Olympic coverage in 2022 and the way NBC, which paid a lot of money to be able to cover this huge global sporting event, the way they opened in the opening ceremony was they actually had pre-prepared videos in the coverage of the sports games, in the coverage of an athletic competition, all about Xinjiang, Hong Kong, Taiwan, Tibet. It was like unremitting hostility. And so we were asking the question, what happened? I mean, what accounts for this shift? And it wasn't just NBC. It's all of the media are have this unremitting, blanketed animus and hostility towards China, unlike 2008. And I think this is important to talk about because in terms of deceiving the masses, people think the New York Times is like a credible newspaper, serious journalist, objective, you know, all of these qualifications of what it means to be like a credible news source, but the coverage is so dramatically different and so much a part of a herd, all of the mainstream media basically echoing the very same political orientation. Go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, we have known for many, many years, the Vietnam War was a a big lesson for people in my generation that the uh, State Department and the uh, Defense Department in this country have, how shall I put it politely, an inordinately powerful influence on what gets published in the New York Times and in most other mass media. They take their cues from the government just the way they do, used to do in the Soviet Union or any other country that was picked out to lambaste government censorship. They're bad. We're good. That you hoped would cover over the fact that you do pretty much exactly what they do. Then there's that's the formal kind of uh, give you a clue. This is the way you should handle this. 
this year's Olympics this way, last year's Olympics that way. If we had time, we could talk about the hysterical newspaper coverage of the Ukraine issue that is going on now, which is another kind of textbook case. But I don't want to lose the little thing. The federal government doesn't need to tell newspapers to be anti-labor. It doesn't need to give them clues because they already do it automatically. They are capitalists. Their job is to make money. They want to pay their workers as little as they can possibly get away with. If they can replace a worker with a machine, an automatic computer, digital machinery, they'll do that. If they can produce or print their materials somewhere else more cheaply, they'll do that. They are the employer class's organs. And if you were serious, if you were serious about a free press, it would have to be free not only of governmental controls, dictates, and censorship, but likewise of the control of a tiny social class of employers. You'd have to set aside, as some societies do, at least in part, you'd have to set aside tax money to establish a kind of press that was separate from the government, had considerable independence, could go to the people if it was interfered with and make that at least difficult for the government to do, that wouldn't be the private profit generator for some capitalist the way it is in this country. And there are countries that do that. A number of European countries have a much larger public media presence than we do because of these exact kinds of considerations. Successful socialist, labor, communist, and other political parties in those countries, having been discriminated against all the time by privately owned media, made sure that there were public media, made sure that there were ways of making the media responsible to your average employee at least as much as to your employer minority. We haven't done that in this country. We have the pathetic alternative of a national public radio that is so kept back of the funding it needs to be independent that it had years ago to knuckle under to Republican Party pressure and make itself a fundraiser by going to corporations, which it does, to get sponsorship paid for, which it does, which makes those stations dependent, like their counterparts in the private sector, on those very same corporation. It's a sad spectacle. And the really interesting question is why the American people, as they turn against the media, which they have done in recent years in a way I haven't seen before, why they tolerate it? And the answer is, well, in a way, they don't. They've left all the major newspapers. They've left all the major television and radio stations. More and more, they get the news that they decide to trust through the internet in a thousand different ways. That has its own problems associated with it, but it is the fault 
of the uniformity of the American mass media that they have generated the kind of opposition that is now threatening them at all sides. The New York Times is, as I mentioned earlier, a family-owned business in terms of um, the Oaks family and the Salzberger family by marriage, almost like one of the traditional monarchies of Europe, a long-lasting dynastic family. Again, people don't think of the New York Times as sort of the tool of a very, very, very super rich family. They think of it as a credible news source. But if you're owning the New York Times, you determine what's in the New York Times. Go ahead. Absolutely. You decide who the editor will or will not be, who the reporters are. There have been a long line of reporters who have, uh, particularly later in their lives many times, spoken out or written about the limits on what they can produce. Even publicly, there have been exposés of the role, for example, of the New York Times around the invasion by the United States and its paid folks of Cuba back in 1961. I mean, literally every major and even many not so major crises in American foreign policy have been times when the major newspapers, almost always including the New York Times, did what they were asked to do by the State Department, by the political leadership of this country, which, by the way, sometimes comes from the New York Times, sometimes leaves its government job and goes to work for the New York Times. I mean, it is a bit of a musical chairs in which the New York Times, big business, and the federal government are the people you circulate among. It's the same individuals. They usually went to the same colleges, had the same teachers. I mean, it is a ruling class. And ruling classes in every society have always understood that one of the ways you stay the ruling class is to make sure you control what is heard, seen, and read by the mass of people over whom you rule. The Washington Post, like the New York Times, is also considered one of the, you know, the top papers. New York Times, of course, the citadel, the capital of finance capital, that would be Wall Street in New York. And of course, the government, the administrative governmental bureaucratic apparatus located here in Washington, D.C., where I am. So you have this dynastic family in New York, the Salzberger family, owning the New York Times. And in Washington, Richard, we had the the Graham family, and the Graham family was very famous, and they had all of their cocktail parties, and uh, people who were in government would come, and they you know talk and be you know treated to fine food. But of course, they were like the inner circle of Washington D.C. And whether you climbed the ladder or didn't climb the ladder in terms of the government bureaucracy or your position of power, a lot depended on whether you got invited to those parties. Now, the Graham family sold the Washington Post, and we have another family owning the Washington Post. And of course, that's Jeff Bezos. And so you have Jeff Bezos, who, by the way, by the way, just this is digression and anecdotal, but I I know you'll find it funny. He donated $2.75 million, which you would, you know, $2.75 million to the Washington, D.C. public library system 
And the public library, which is named the Martin Luther King Jr. Library in the center of Washington, very big library complex, they immediately named their auditorium the Jeff Bezos Auditorium because he donated $2.75 million out of an annual budget of $73 million. So it wasn't even that much for the library. And then a bunch of people here in Washington have been raising hell about this, and Bezos just backed down and asked that his name be removed. But here, my point is, Jeff Bezos, obviously $2.75 million, he makes that, or so-called makes it, in like about one minute. But it's all of this influence. And again, the idea that the Washington Post somehow is editorial independence from its owner, and the owner also has a $600 million contract with the CIA and then a $10 billion contract with the Department of Defense. When you just think about these facts and use your own brain, meaning all of us use our own brain, you can't but come to the conclusion that this isn't the free press. Yeah, you can only sustain that idea by repeating it over and over and over again, by telling stories about other countries where the government manipulates the press and pretending that you're in a state of shock and awe that this is tolerated and allowed in another country, articles written as if the reporter didn't know how similar it is here, as if the reporter never had the thought cross his or her mind, that being subject to private profit imperatives as the owners of businesses typically are, will have all kinds of effects on how you cover everything that goes on. But for sure, capital and labor struggles I mean, we are a society in which bosses are squeezing workers all day, every day across the country. There's loads of stories that have to be written about all of that. And yet we allow the people on one side of that struggle to control the news about that struggle. Now, that's just stupid, or it's a population that is afraid to say boo about this, afraid to say this is intolerable. And then you really have to ask, well, why? Why are we constantly talking about a free press that isn't free and willing to live in a society that gives us such a lopsided, censored flow of information uh, simply because the people who are censoring and who are making it lopsided, don't hold a position in the government. They just hold a position in the ruling class of a capitalist system. Richard, on our final topic here, I want to talk to you about tech workers and the fact that they're organizing into unions. In the Communist Manifesto, written by Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, at a tender age, Marx was 28 and Engels was 27, they wrote it in 1848, so a long time ago, A lot has changed since then, but there's so much in their writings that remains pertinent, salient, relevant. They wrote in the manifesto as they were in very short, sort of a short version, talking about the history or the evolution of different social systems and the evolution of the bourgeois system, as they called it. And one of the parts of the manifesto reads, the bourgeoisie has stripped of its halo every occupation hitherto honored and looked up to with reverent awe. It has converted the physician, the lawyer, 
the priest, the poet, the man of science into its paid wage laborers. Now, that's a very important and far-sighted, perspicacious thought by Marx and Engels back in 1848, because as we can see, that is obviously true. Now you have high-tech workers, software engineers, people who are highly educated, highly skilled, but who are, in the last analysis, wage workers, in this case, wage workers for the New York Times. And like the wage workers that Marx and Engels were thinking more about in 1848 or in 1860s or 70s, which would have been industrial workers crammed together under one roof, software engineers are not only high paid, they're also all over the place. They can work remotely. They don't have to be under the same roof. But the same dynamic elements of capitalism that took the halo off other occupations that had been revered before, that's happening now with tech workers. And you see tech workers organizing at Google, tech workers organizing at the New York Times. This expanded understanding or our understanding of the working class or the proletariat includes this other newer sectors of the of the working class, and they are organizing. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I think what I'm hoping is that this movement of employees at the newspapers will not only get them a better job, better working conditions, but will spark in them, and I think there's some evidence already that this is happening, a much larger social perspective one that could have them begin to see themselves as heroes, which they can be. Heroes in making the press in this country, whether it's radio, television, newspaper, doesn't matter, have a genuine independence, have a genuine freedom in which the different social organizations in the society have a chance to shape the news about themselves and others, that we're not constantly being looked at and understanding ourselves and others through the lens operated by a tiny minority, the employer class in this country. I mean, it is for me that hope that out of the labor struggle, social change, including the status of reporting and and the whole notion. Let me give you an example that very concretely. My family is French. And many years ago, when I started visiting regularly, I'd be there on a Sunday morning. And on a Sunday morning, the fam- my family turned on the television to watch the French equivalent of programs like Meet the Press and all the rest of it. These public information programs. But imagine my shock as a young American when one of the first times I'm sitting there in the living room looking at the television, and there's the equivalent of Meet the Press, only a guest that day was the head of the French Communist Party. And he was there answering reporters' questions about how communists in France look at the issues of that society, what kinds of criticisms they have, what kinds of hopes for change they were working on, and so on. And I remember thinking to myself, I've never seen the head of the Communist Party 
ever on American television doing anything. I've heard the Communist Party talked about in hostile, dismissive terms, but getting those folks up there so we could hear what it is they have to say never happened in my lifetime here in the United States. And then I discovered that in France, that's what they do. They every, every few months, they rotate through the leaders of their varying political parties um, to give them a chance to talk to the people so that the French people know what the different perspectives on their issues are. And I remember thinking to myself, it's as normal as apple pie here, and it is unthinkable in the United States. And I think that captures the bizarre position of the United States, which the rest of the world sees not very well fooled at all, but Americans coming very slowly to grasp the delusions and fakeries under which they live. No surprise to me that the phrase Mr. Trump would come up with is fake news. He, of course, got it from somewhere else. But the notion that the adjective fake belongs in front of the word news is not a testimony to Trump or Republicans. It's a testimony to a news apparatus that has betrayed what it could and should have been. It's so, so interesting, Richard, and so much to think about there where people in the United States, when asked, how do you compare American democracy to the rest of the world? They'll say, oh, we're a lot of people say we're the greatest democracy. We're the greatest democracy. And and what what separates the United States from from Russia or China? People say, oh, we have the free press. We're, so we're a great democracy in the free press. And then other surveys ask people, what's your approval rating of the U.S. Congress? And it's like six percent. <laughs> like there's no approval rating at all for the government. What do you think about the media? Oh, we hate the media. I mean, it's these kind of divergence, sort of contradictory thoughts and feelings. So the, the overarching narrative about what the United States is, which is unless criticized sort of robustly, people sort of just glom onto it. But when asked in a specific way, they kind of hate the system that they also describe as being the world's greatest democracy. Anyway, we're completely out of time. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to get his new hard copy edition of Understanding Marxism. That's Professor Wolff's book, Understanding Marxism, and has a new lengthy introduction which strengthens the case for why all of us need to fully understand Marxism, why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. 
connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 